Welcome back to the ITK podcast. I'm UK and let's get right into the show. During the chaos of the 1976 military coup, the coup leader, Colonel Dimka, tried contacting Gowon, who was in London at the time, through the British High Commission, but was refused. The optics couldn't have been more disparaging for Gowon, as that attempt by Dimka to reach out implicated him in the coup. A publication was made of Dimka trying to reach out to Gowon through the British High Commission, but the refusal was left out of the publication. So people were left speculating whether Gowon was indeed a fellow conspirator of Dimka's, even though Gowon had vehemently denied any such involvement. What was left of Muritala's administration was fighting hard to control the narrative and to get to the bottom of the prevailing conundrum. A further statement three days later claimed that, quote-unquote, ample evidence from the conspirators showed that Gowon, distantly related to Dimka by marriage, had known of the plan, which the general denied on his honor as an officer and a Christian. The optics had already put Gowon in a negative light and a campaign against him was pursued with fury and disregard for truth, which showed the vindictive proclivities of the presiding regime. Dimka was arrested three weeks later and interrogated extensively. It was reported that he gave an incoherent confession that depicted himself as merely the intermediary between Bisala dubbed the chief organizer and Gowon, whom Dimka had visited in London sometime in the past, and he heard of disgruntled majors. Gowon's denial of any involvement in the coup wasn't convincing enough, and after attempts were made to have him extradited back to Nigeria to face trial failed, he was dismissed from the army and barred from Nigeria until 1981. With mounting questions from the public on Gowon's alleged involvement in the coup, Shehu Musa Yaradwa addresses the press in a briefing on the ongoing investigations. It was around this time that Dimka traveled to Madrid on official duties. En route to London, Dimka met a retired senior government official who is now under arrest. During conversations with this fellow, Dimka alluded to some discontent with the way the country was being governed and regretted the change of government in July 1975. He was then invited to spend a few days in London on his way back from Madrid for further discussions. While there, Dimka met and held discussions with General Gawan, who told him that everything was ready and he, Dimka, would be fully briefed by Bisala on his return to Nigeria. Based on irrefutable evidence obtained by the Board of Inquiry, Gawan has already been asked to come home and defend himself. What? An invitation has already been extended to Dergawan to come and defend himself. We have we are already taking steps, both uh, diplomatic and legal, to see to the extradition of Gawan to Nigeria. I think further than that, I'm not prepared to say any more now. After the investigations were concluded, 39 people in total were publicly executed at the behest of the chants from massive crowds that had gathered to bear witness. Vassinger was called out by critics as being too brutal, but the principal narrative in a statement later released sought to portray the killings as necessary to usher in a new age of discipline and morality. On the event of Muritala's funeral, 
Obasanjo gave a heartfelt tribute to his friend and fallen comrade and expressed his sincere hesitancy to ascend to power. He mentioned in the speech that he had been called upon against his wishes but had to heed the call. Obasanjo somehow had always gained power without seeking it. Perhaps his secret strengths were his modesty and austerity as well as his thought prowess and capacity for work. He also had the ability to inspire consensus whenever required and embodied a transparent patriotism that had elevated him to the point of being offered head of state, even though he had never made a bid for power. Was all this just great luck? Or was there more to it? Matthew Olusha Guaremo Obasanjo was born on March 5th, 1937 at Ibogun Olaogu a village halfway between Abiyakuta and Lagos. He was the firstborn in a family of nine. Unfortunately, only he and his sister, Aduni Oluwole, survived childhood. The pair was raised in a humble family background. Their father was a farmer and therefore they were extensively involved in agricultural activities during their early years. The remoteness of his home village played a major role in shaping his life. It was during his formative years working with his father that Basanjo picked up his lifelong principle of extreme deference to authority. Ibogun was a farm settlement of Abiyokuta and despite its proximity, Obasanjo never visited until he turned nine years old. His poor and rural upbringing coupled with an absence of a wealthy family patron meant Obasanjo grew up without the family and community ties that binds most Nigerians to their ethnic groups. It also gave him a preference for rural living and an easy rapport with village people. A young passenger kept his ambitions at the time limited and practical. He wanted to become a mechanic like one of his cousins or a barman. His father, on the other hand, wanted passenger to go to school. Passenger, not knowing a lot about school or education, simply agreed to his father's request out of respect for him. At the age of 11 years, passenger started his education. With the encouragement of his father, he joined a local village primary school. In 1951, he moved on to the Baptist Day School in the Owu quarter of Abiyokuta. He then joined Baptist Boys High School for his secondary school studies. While attending secondary school, Bassinger stood out in two ways. The first was he was older than most students in his class and the other was his poor background. His father, having failed at farming, abandoned his family. His mother was forced to start trading to support him and his sister. Oluremi, his future wife, then a schoolgirl, remarked about their first encounter. I looked him over. He wore no shoes, not even the cheap tennis shoes sold for seven shillings and six pence that students wore then. He introduced himself to me about beginning a friendship. I didn't take him very seriously. In 1956, at the age of 19, he finished his secondary school education. Rather than sit at home and wait for his school to set him up for the school certificate examinations, he borrowed one pound and five pence from a local bookseller and took the exam. After passing his exams, his secondary school refused to give him a testimonial for taking action on his own. Frustrated, Obasanjo leaves Abiyokuta for Ibadan to take up teaching there while studying for the entrance examination into the university college, the zenith of the Nigerian educational system. After passing the exams and gaining admission, 
He couldn't attend the school due to his inability to pay the fees and also not knowing how to obtain a scholarship. Still determined to become a civil engineer, he decided to seek apprenticeships around town. One morning, while prepping to go out and continue his search, he notices an ad in the newspaper by the Nigerian Army for applicants with science backgrounds to be trained as officer cadets. He quickly jumps at the opportunity. Not knowing it at the time, a younger passenger had just made the most important decision of his life. He received military education and training in England and India. After completing all the necessary training, he was commissioned to become a Nigerian officer. He rose quickly up the ranks to lieutenant within two years of being commissioned an officer. As a lieutenant, he served in the peacekeeping forces in Congo, formerly known as Zaire. It's a chilly morning in January 1961 at the Nigerian 5th Battalion Camp in Bukavu in the eastern Kivu province in Zaire. Obasanjo is shooting the breeze with his roommate Chukumanzogu. Chego, uh-uh. You are not using with the boys today. Man, Baba, free me. All the boys want to do in their downtime is drink and smoke. That cigarette smoke is very terrible. Ah, you are not lying there. Between you and me, I'm not comfortable with the army giving out alcohol and cigarettes to officers. It's a stain on the uniform, in my opinion. Speaking of alcohol, you don't believe what Colonel Aguin Ronson said to me yesterday. Eh? What did he say? Guy, he said that he doesn't like me because I don't drink. He feels I'm always too sober. It is well that an alert senior officer will say that. I mean, the fact we both don't drink or smoke has helped endear us to the Congolese forces here. Can you imagine? And that's how commanding officer was supposed to look up to. I really hate him, you see. He only enjoys his position because that devil I met Bella has it out for you, Yorubas, now. All times he is filled with our lower. Politicians are a poison in society. Look at what is happening here, Zaire, thanks to their nonsense. The Zaire peacekeeping tours left a lasting impression on the young Nigerian officers that served there. Could even be argued that the disillusionment of Nzogu started during his tour there after seeing the chaos firsthand. By the end of 1970 and the Civil War, Obasanjo was a war hero who had served his country gallantly against the Biafran forces. He returned to peacetime soldiering as a brigadier commanding the Army Corps of Engineers in Lagos. The next five years of his life would be very quiet as he prospered as a businessman and a landowner. In January 1975, he was assigned to be the Federal Commissioner of Works and Housing by the then Head of State General Yakubu Gowon. After the fall of Gowon, Muritala took over and recognizing Obasanjo's utility, he appointed him as his Chief of Staff Supreme Headquarters. Obasanjo, who was marginally Muritala's senior, considered to being his second in command, provided he had substantial responsibilities. This was not going to be the last time Obasanjo got power without seeking it out, as we've already established. He remained a silent figure by Muritala's side for a while, and the two grew to become good friends. Insiders soon realized that Obasanjo was both the workhorse and the brains of the regime. General Danjima recalls how they met frequently after the close of work and discussed issues. Danjima is also reported as having said, And at every meeting, Obasanjo would have a pad in hand with a pen. As we're talking, he would take down the minutes of the conclusions of the meetings and unfailingly, 
The following morning, when I got to the Ministry of Defense and sat at my desk, I would find on top of my entry the meetings of the previous day's meeting already written out, noting who's to do what on each item. I thought Mortala was very lucky to have a staff officer who was that efficient. It is reported that save of anyone who worked closely with Obasanjo and his close confidants, including Yaradua, Danjima, and MD Yusuf, it would be impossible to fully grasp the almost fanatical allegiances these men had to the concept of Nigerianness. Obasanjo's efficiency also stood out during his own regime. In carrying out his ambitions as head of state, he encouraged open debates and used that as a tool to inspire consensus. He looked beyond the cowed civil service to the cabinet office think tanks and relied heavily on his chief of staff, Yaradua, for implementable ideas. Early 1976, when security in the country had been restored, the regime faced the economy. In what a newspaper referred to as a show of seriousness, he proposed to balance the budget by reducing government spending by one-sixth and curtail prestige projects while expanding expenditure on education, health, housing, and agriculture. Nigeria's agriculture imports had soared uncontrollably, and with the growing need for locally produced food, the regime responded with the initiative Operation Feed the Nation, which was inaugurated on May 21, 1976. Operation Feed the Nation sought to improve peasant farming through the encouragement of young people to farming. It also pushed for the establishment of farms in every community, including schools, which is why if your primary school or secondary school while growing up in Nigeria had a farm, it's thanks to Operation Feed the Nation. The initiative eventually would prove to be a failure as it did not propel Nigeria to become food independent. Several initiatives were inaugurated, including three massive irrigation schemes in the arid north, the Bakaluri scheme and the South Chad irrigation projects. A report in 1981 had found that the Nigerian schemes had cost 2,470 naira per irrigated hectare as against 500 naira with similar projects in Côte d'Ivoire. At Bakaluri, the cost had risen even up to 7,540 naira per irrigated hectare. The intention was to produce irrigated wheat, rice, sugar and other crops to replace imported crops. But in reality, the local economy didn't profit. Rather, the profits largely went to contractors and richer families who used most of the irrigated lands to grow indigenous crops. After a blockade organized by poorer peasant farmers in protest to being evicted without compensation, there was a mass police shooting which saw over a hundred people killed. This crisis halted those projects. Amidst a dwindling oil and gas market, Obasanjo made only cautious progress towards bringing the industry further under national control, given that the need for international companies' expertise made full nationalization impossible. His chief initiative was to amalgamate the Ministry of Petroleum Resources and the Nigerian National Oil Corporation into the Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation, NNPC, that both regulated the industry and operated as a commercial marketing and potentially producing company. Obasanjo encouraged a characteristically ambitious plan for a liquefaction plant at Boni costing over $4.5 billion, 
60% of which was financed by NNPC with an elaborate network of collecting pipelines. When he left office in 1979, the plan was almost complete, but cost increases, financial stringency, and market contraction forced his successor to abandon the project. After banning two imports that had given the Nigerian economy a boost in recent years, Obasanjo proclaimed that his new budget set out an ambitious program of capital expenditure on infrastructure and industry. The nation, he proclaimed, is entering a period of rapid industrialization. Although Nigeria by that time had gained a terrible reputation for wasting its oil wealth on conspicuous consumption, the military regimes of the 70s maintained high levels of investment. The military regime's dangerous legacies were overinvestment and inefficient investments, especially in large-scale projects that were ill-conceived, uncompleted, or beyond the country's capacity to manage and maintain. The most conspicuous illustration of these problems was the integrated steel mill at Ajaokuta, designed to enable Nigeria advance from light import substitution. In January 1977, Obasanjo inspected the complex and claimed it would be basic to Nigeria's industrial takeoff, but it was only very shortly before he left office in 1979 that construction began. It involved building not only a steel mill, but a new port, roads, and railway lines capable of carrying 100-ton loads, a power station, and a town for the workers. The smelting process, which was already outdated by international standards, required suitable coking coal, which is not found in Nigeria. All the elements of the project had to be constructed concurrently, otherwise those left unused would deteriorate, which indeed happened. Abandonment, however, would mean waste and defeat. It has to be viewed from the strategic point and from the amount of money already sunk for the project to be seen as the catastrophic failure it is. Basunjo attested in 1990 that Ajao Kuta and its failures would haunt him for the rest of his life. Perhaps the most striking act of centralization that Obasanjo carried out during his regime was the restructuring of the local government level. Decreed in 1976, which saw elected officials emerge with a paid chairman and subordinate staff receiving revenue directly from the central government. The local government was sanctioned to exercise concurrent responsibility together with the state government for primary education, basic healthcare, and local services. The scheme was designed to make authorities both effective agents of development and locally accountable training grounds for democracy. However, the scheme worked poorly. The funds allocated to local authorities became irresistible targets for corruption, patronage, and rivalries. By 1996, the local government areas had multiplied to 774. Local services often collapsed. State governments charged to organize regular local government elections replaced them with favored caretakers. And by 1980, only two of the 19 states had fully elected local councils. This was just one of the many failed initial attempts by the Obasanjo regime to get Nigeria to democratic leadership. Obasanjo left office when the Naira exchanged for $1.67, and it was a time of economic buoyancy in the nation's history. Though this is very deceptive, as the oil market had rebounded during the later years of his administration, saving Obasanjo the situation of handing over an economy in a downturn to the next administration. 
Many believe that Basinger wasn't as successful as his devotees claim, but it is also common concession that he cannot be blamed for the economic darkness that befell the nation after his regime left power. That's it for this week's episode. Special thanks to Dose Kick for writing this episode and a big thanks to Okwe, Henry, Emmanuel and Tulu for voicing. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast fix. Follow the podcast so you can get your weekly updates on every episode. If you have any topics, events or people you would like to see covered, hit me up on Twitter at ITK underscore podcast or on Instagram at ITK underscore podcast. I'm UK and this has been the ITK Podcast. Podcast.